one of the things that's hard for parents to understand and maybe even remember when their child is in recovery is that this thing that has taken place that has caused so much pain and suffering, not only in the child, but in the whole family, didn't happen overnight. And therefore, recovery isn't going to take place overnight. It's not going to be an overnight thing. It's a light bulb might go on at some point, but lighting a very dark and shadowy room takes time. Bringing the light into all the corners of our soul, all those things that hurt, all those shadowy secrets that are causing us pain and suffering, which is driving us to use or to cut or to run, it takes time. And that's tough for families who feel like they're running out of time. So I invited another one of our graduates to come speak with you. And the thing that I love so much about having our graduates on this show is for you to hear the raw and the real truth of what is going on while a child is in recovery. If you didn't have a chance, I want to invite you to go back and listen to Clara's story to get a glimpse into recovery for a teenager. But today's episode is about Hannah. When I asked Hannah to come on, I said, hey, I want you to tell your story. Take about 10 or 15 minutes to tell your story. And 15 minutes into Hannah telling her story, she had just started cracking the surface. 25 minutes in, she was still just getting around to the part where you start to understand how deep this goes. And there was a part of me that wanted to stop her to get on with the programming that I had originally intended. But it dawned on me that you as a parent need to hear the complexity of a child's story. Hannah left no stone unturned. She didn't hold anything back. She tells you almost week by week of what was going on in her life without her parents even knowing. And it's impactful and it allows you as a parent, as a teacher, as a clinician to be reminded of the term sonder. Sonder means everyone you meet, their life is as complex as your own. Hannah's story is not simple, and her recovery is not simple. And I want you to hear the story, and I want you to, to really understand where she is. Addiction doesn't happen in a day. Sobriety doesn't happen in a day. And that's why they say one day at a time. My guest today is Hannah, and the title of today's show is One of Hannah's Days Today. This is Beyond Risk and Back. I am a teacher, teen and parent coach, internationally known trainer. I own and run a residential treatment center for teens. And best of all, I am a happy father, stepfather and husband. Welcome to another episode of Beyond Risk and Back, brought to you by Mental Health News Radio and Fire Mountain Residential Treatment Center. I am your host, Aaron Huey. Beyond Risk and Back is designed for parents, clinicians, and teachers looking for support to guide the teens they care for to move forward from risky behaviors into real freedom and responsibility. Now, let's help each other get these kids back from Beyond Risk. Hey, how are you doing today? I'm all right. How are you? Good. Thank you for saying yes to this. I know it's asking a lot and you and I know each other well. I know a lot of your story. You and I have been through uh, the gates and of heaven and hell together. And uh, we've been in touch since you were at Fire Mountain. And I want 
I want people to hear your story. Not only that, but you had a suggestion for a guest who will be on another episode who really this this person, Noah, uh, who you suggested to me, really something he said, something about him really connected with you. And we'll talk about that later. But I want parents and teachers and clinicians to hear you talk. You've always been very eloquent. You've always been <laughs> very expressive. <laughs> And I, and I want them to hear you you talk about what it's like to be young and to be in the midst of depression, anxiety, addiction, self-harm. My God, what didn't you go through at some point or another? Like it, It's been a rough one for you. So I, I want them to hear you talk about where you started and where you've gotten to so far. So Hannah, take it away. All right. I'm 18 years old now as of like less than a week ago. And I've been struggling for as long as I can remember. Um, when I was younger, like elementary school, probably first, second grade, I started recognizing this weird feeling in my stomach before school, before getting on the bus, when I was at school in the cafeteria, and particularly in like social interactions, free time, unstructured time, couldn't identify this feeling. I'm like, what? Am I hungry? Am I thirsty? Do I need to throw up? Am I nauseous? What's going on? And, you know, now I can recognize that feeling as anxiety. But I think that was one of the first signs for me. And then I, I always, ever since I was little, I struggled with on and off friendships, fighting even, even in as little as first grade, just relationships that weren't working. And I, I was getting in trouble at school for little things. And then it continued to get bigger. My brother struggles with. So ever since I was little, I've had a brother with autism. And I felt like a lot of the attention was going towards him and not to me. And I do believe that I, I would act out to try and get my parents' attention. I remember this specific occasion where they were giving a lot of attention to my brother, so I hid behind my rocking chair in my room, and they couldn't find me, and I remember them, like, watching them walk by and freaking out and couldn't find me, and I just, like, I loved it. I loved, like, knowing that they were thinking about me, and, like, it just fucked up. Like, that's not how you should try and get attention, you know? And then I also remember, like, getting in trouble with my mom at a very young age. The first thing I would say is, like, oh, I'm so sorry, like, I, I should just die, and I don't think that at that young of an age, I really knew, you know, what it meant to die or want to die, but it was something that crossed my mind. And then fast forward, I kind of just had a, like little struggles until probably fourth grade when I think I was starting puberty. I got my period at a really young age. So I started like going through puberty before a lot of girls my age. And I noticed my, my appearance a lot more than I ever had before. I was very critical of myself, thinking, you know, I'm ugly, I'm too fat, I'm I'm too pale, you know, I have blonde hair and that girl's really pretty and has brown hair, and just recognizing that I was not happy with myself and did not feel good enough and just constant comparisons to my classmates. That was just kind of an ongoing thing that I remember. I remember like being in class and being really upset. I can't even remember what I was upset about. But I um, had taken the eraser on my pencil and just rubbed it against my skin, causing like a burn. And so after that, like, I don't remember feeling a sense of like 
why I was doing that, but I remember feeling kind of relieved after hurting myself. And so that was like ongoing. That's when it started. That's when my self-harm began. I wore bracelets all up my arm to hide my burn marks. And eventually, I, I want to say fifth, maybe sixth grade or the summer before sixth grade, I started like experimenting with different ways of self-harm. I remember starving myself and making myself throw up. And then it became like scratching myself and eventually became cutting myself. Sixth grade, start of middle school, that was probably when I recognized my anxiety being the worst like it had ever been before. There were so many new things. I was a big kid with a bunch of like older kids. It was just, it was a huge change. And adjusting to change has been hard for me ever since I was little. I remember hating going to gym class. I hated having to wear shorts in front of everyone. I just, I was so uncomfortable. I remember that's when like the bullying probably got the worst. And that, I mean, like in elementary school, I remember being bullied but I never really considered it bullying. I just figured it was like being teased, like everyone goes through this. And then in sixth grade, that's kind of when it got really bad. When did your parents realize that there was a problem? They didn't realize there was a problem until seventh grade when I had opened up to my mom and told her I was suicidal. But in sixth grade, that's when the bullying became the worst. Social media was like, becoming a huge thing. Like Facebook had always been a thing in MySpace, but like I remember Instagram becoming a thing in sixth grade. And there were, I was pretty popular. And I think that, you know, when you're popular, there's a lot of people that are jealous of you and just people that, you know, want to see you you fall down. Um, People would make fake accounts of me, post like scandalous pictures, pretending that it's me post comments on other people's pictures, like saying really rude things, trying to pose as me. And then, you know, everyone kind of started seeing me and calling me like there were so many rumors about me being a slut and sleeping around when in all reality, like I, I honestly, I don't even think I knew what sex was like, it just, it was so unrealistic. And I ended up getting through sixth grade. And then come seventh grade, I was struggling a lot with my weight again, not eating very much watching, counting my calories, exercising excessively. And then school, like the bullying got so bad. People were like shoving me, people I didn't even know calling me names in the halls, like walking down to my bus, people would stick their heads out the windows of their bus calling me names. I remember people like telling me I'm ugly. And I I had eczema and I got an eczema outbreak on my face one day and people told me, Oh, look, the devil, the real devil in her is coming out. Like her, you know, her true colors are showing and just typical teenagers being assholes, fat, ugly, slut. You know, I feel like I got it all. And I believe it was like the end of the first semester of seventh grade. I finally, one day before school, I think the day before I had been bullied really bad. And the next day, like I woke up and I remember it was so hard to get out of bed and I I just didn't want to go to school the next day. I didn't want to face everyone. I felt like everyone hated me. I wanted to die. And I think, I think that was the first time I felt like, Oh, like I really want to die. I don't want to be alive anymore. And when I was 12, so I was about 13 uh, in seventh grade, but when I was 12, I got like a, a checkup with my doctor. You know, when you're 12, you got to go tell them all this shit about yourself. And 
I answered a large questionnaire and it was like, do you feel fat? And I'm like, I was really honest with it. And I was honest about engaging in self-harm. And I was honest about having suicidal thoughts. And I had talked to my doctor about it. And he just said that he made me promise him that if I felt like I was going to hurt myself, that I would tell my parents or call him. And I, I really felt like I couldn't be safe that day. And so I, I remember my mom made me like, I think toast and bought me orange juice. And I asked her to sit down with me at the table. And I, I just remember saying, mom, like, I need to talk to you. And she just, she just looked at me and was like, what, honey? And I'm like, I'm suicidal. And she, she had no idea. I've never seen her so shocked in my life. She just asked, where did this come from? How long has this been going on? And she immediately took me to go see a, like an emergency therapist. And the therapist had a safety plan and asked me to sign it saying that, you know, I can keep myself safe. And I, I couldn't sign it because I knew that, you know, I'd, I'd be lying. So that day I was taken to the emergency room and they did like a psychiatric evaluation. I got hooked up with Clackamas Community, Catholic Community Services, I believe. And that was like the start of getting help for me. I had like a psychiatrist there and a therapist. I got put on medication for the first time and diagnosed with anxiety and depression. And then I went back to school a couple weeks later. And I remember one girl, someone I was, you know, on and off friends with, but she was an awful friend and she was the biggest bully really to me and most other people. There had been rumors spread that I tried to kill myself and that I was in the hospital for being crazy and all these things. And she had said to me, I wish you would have killed yourself. And that was the first thing I heard when I walked back into school. And I just remember feeling so overwhelmed already and I was crying and I went to the counselor's office and I just had my dad pick me up and I went home. And I I don't think I even went back for a week because I just couldn't do it. And I ended up finishing the year out there. And then I transferred middle schools to a middle school the town over. And I, I had made some friends at the new middle school. Things were going okay. And then things ended up going downhill. I was still struggling a lot with depression and anxiety and self-harm, suicidal thoughts. I made friends and then I also, you know, made enemies. There was a lot of things that happened and I ended up, I ended up getting suspended. And then coming back, I tried doing some online classes and I just had no motivation. That's probably when it was, when the depression started becoming the worst, affecting me physically for like the first time that I could identify. I had no motivation. The things I enjoyed before, I had no interest in whatsoever. I'd make any excuse I could to not go out or not get out of bed or not go to school. It was just, it was so hard. It was so hard to not understand why I was so depressed, why I couldn't be a normal person. I was going through med changes on and off over and over again, and nothing seemed to be helping. I didn't, I didn't notice any positive changes from the medication. I ended up going out of the online classes and back into the school I was going to. And I struggled a lot still. I, don't, I didn't go to school very often. 
I mean, they made like a plan for me. I got on a 504 and I was going to school less. They gave me less hours. And then even that was too hard for me. I ended up getting through eighth grade, graduating eighth grade. And then it was off to figuring out, okay, where am I going to go to high school? When you, I don't say, like people, I, when, you, when you say that it was too hard, you're talking about the anxiety, right? The anxiety, yeah, and just being able to motivate myself to even just get out of bed and go, yeah. And did, the, did the feeling of anxiety change from when you were the little kid getting on the bus and going to do stuff from when now you're in junior high getting ready to head into high school? The, I think the only way it changed was it was like more severe. It became like not just a feeling in my stomach, but it was like, I was physically like shaking and crying and my thoughts were racing and also just being able to identify it as anxiety, which I wasn't able to when I was so young. Okay. Yeah. But then figuring out high school, the town I live in has one big high school and then an alternative arts and technology school. And then there's a town over that's in the same county that I could go to that had a big high school. I didn't, I didn't want to go anywhere. And my mom ended up finding a online academy program for me in a town very close. And I was, I was super excited. I, I found out that they had like a building so I could rent a laptop from them and do my work at home and go in there. I was like a flexible schedule. I was able to be independent. And the counselor there told me, you know, I was able to, if I worked my ass off, I could graduate early, which was something I was so interested in and it was a huge goal of mine and then oh my gosh I totally forgot in eighth grade I tried to kill myself (laughs) wow okay so eighth going back eighth grade I had what what did you do I had overdosed in eighth grade I think that was shortly after I was suspended because I came back and everyone hated me or that's how it felt at least so I I had overdosed and tried to kill myself and I ended up telling my dad like I just took a lot of pills and I I think I told him because it, I was scared and he ended up taking me to the emergency room and I had my stomach pumped and I was sent to a psych ward for a week and then I got out and I I was doing better for a little bit but then it was same old same old and then back to freshman year I was at an online academy And I was doing really well for a semester. Things were going well. I liked my classes. I liked the setup. I liked the independence. And I was going into the building like every week to do work and socializing and interacting with my teachers and peers there. And then I believe second semester is when it went downhill again. The suicidal thoughts were killing me. The medication was still not working. No matter what we tried, I had been on so many medications and just nothing was working. I think it was, that was when I did dialectical behavioral therapy. There was a place in, in a town near me that did DBT. And so it was like a long program where you had an individual therapist session once a week and then a group therapy session once a week, and then you also got a psychiatrist there. I did that program. Dialectical behavioral therapy is a lot about mindfulness and, you know, meditation. And I really liked the stuff I learned there about being mindful, but it still didn't seem to help. I still felt so stuck and hopeless, like I was going nowhere. 
so at the end of the program, your therapist will say, oh, you graduated, or oh, I want you to do phase two, or oh, I want you to redo phase one. For some reason, my therapist asked me to redo phase one, and my family and I disagreed. We did not, we didn't think that was right. I mean, I would have been okay with like her recommendation of doing phase two, but I just kind of felt like I just didn't feel supported by her recommendation. And so we stopped going there. We didn't continue on with them. And then I had another suicide attempt shortly after, the same way, trying to overdose. But this time, it was a lot worse than the first time. I had taken so many pills. My parents weren't home. And I had actually, I didn't tell anyone, but I had a friend who at the time was down the street and she was drunk. I just remember that she was at a party drunk down the street from me. And I had texted her and I was just like, I love you so much. And that's all I said. And somehow she, she knew. And she was like, can I come over? And I was like, I was like, yeah. And then I gave her my address. And shortly after there were police knocking at my door, I opened the door and there were, there was an ambulance and police and a fire truck. And I came out on the porch and was like, what the fuck? Like, what are you guys doing here? And he's like, are you okay? And I remember before I opened the door, I was like throwing up on the floor. Like my body could not handle what I had taken. I was so dizzy and I felt like I was going to pass out. I went outside to talk to them and I just told them like, oh, I already threw up. Like, I'm fine. Like, I don't need to go to the hospital. I'm, I'm totally fine. And then they kind of got all the information from me and just decided like, okay, like your parents aren't home. Like you can't decide not to go to the hospital. And they said, I remember them like looking in my eyes and my pupils weren't responsive. And so they put me on a gurney in the, and put me in the ambulance and had given me charcoal to pump my stomach. And it was such a scary experience. Like I don't remember a lot of it cause I was like so out of it, but I remember like waking up in the hospital with, charcoal all down my chest like just black and like throw up smelling I smelled awful and my my parents weren't with me no one was with me and I I was just so scared and I just remember like feeling like still like I wish I died like I wish I wish no one called the police I wish it worked and shortly after a nurse came in and said you know you have a visitor and I'm like what and they're like it's your brother and I have two brothers and You know, one of them lives with me and he's, he has autism and he's been like a bully, I guess, my whole life. I didn't think it was him. He doesn't drive. How would he get there? And then my other brother lives hours away. And I think at the time he lived in a different state. I'm like, it couldn't be him. They're like, well, do you want to see him? And I was like, I mean, I guess. I don't know who the fuck it is, but I guess. My brother and his friend, my, my brother who lives with me, who has autism, walked in with his friend. And I'm like, how did you get here? And he's like, my friend Alex drove me. And I'm like, how did Alex drive you? He was in the state over. So I had found out that um, my brother asked, sorry, (laughs) my brother asked his friend that was literally in in a different state to come pick him up and bring him to the hospital because the police had gone up to his room when they were taking me to the hospital and told him where they were taking me. And uh, he he was there and... You know, that was the first time that I really felt like my brother cared about me. Sorry. It's okay. Shortly after, my family, my parents came, and they were just like, you know, what's happening? What's going on? 
and I was like, I, I just want to die. Like, I, I can't do this anymore. And I was evaluated again and sent to the, the same psych ward I was at before. And this time I was there for two weeks. I came out and things were okay again for a little bit and then got bad again. <laughs> same old, same old. Shortly after, my parents ended up sending me to rehab. They got secure transport to send me. So one morning, basically, I woke up with these people who looked like cops in my room and just telling me that they have to take me somewhere. And it, I didn't know what the hell was going on. My mom was at work and my dad was just crying, not saying anything. So they put me in the back of a car that was basically like a police car. It had the bars and everything and took me a few towns over. I had no idea where I was going or why I ended up at rehab. And I didn't know if, you know, my parents thought I was using, which, I mean, I was, but just occasionally, just, you know, using every once in a while. It was kind of experimenting just with weed and alcohol. It wasn't serious yet at that point. They ended up telling me, like, nothing. I had no idea why I was there still, and I couldn't talk to my parents for, like, the first few days. And then when I did talk to my parents, they just weren't very specific, just saying, like, oh, you need help. Like, we just want help for you. And I found out, you know, it was a 30-day program. And so I faked it till I was out. I acted like I was totally fine. They did, like, a drug evaluation, and I lied about everything. Like, no, I've smoked weed once. I've drank once. Like, I'm, I'm fine. Like, blah, blah. And I made it out in, like, 27 days. And then I came home, and things were the same. But I think when I was there, I heard a lot of people's, like, war stories about like drugs they did and how fun it was and I think that's when I really started experimenting I really was like okay like I want to try acid or cocaine and like all these people that do it have fun and so I ended up finding some friends that um, had hookups and I ended up trying like acid and cocaine and it wasn't until you know a couple weeks later that I was doing cocaine every day. It wasn't a social thing either. It was like I was doing it myself as well. Where'd Just you get by the myself money for in it? my room. <laughs> I would sell my things. I had like old electronics I would sell or I would trade things. I was stealing money from my brother, stealing money from my parents, asking for money to go to the movies when I really wouldn't go to the movies. I could go and buy drugs. Yeah. And then I just remember like every time I felt any type of anxiety or sadness, it was like, okay, time for another line. And that's, that's just how it was. That was my coping mechanism. I wasn't even hurting myself anymore at that point. I was just doing drugs. And then I would start like combining drugs. I was like doing a line and then doing like smoking a bowl and then taking a shot and like doing it all at once to feel like as good as I could. None of my friends really knew that I was doing it. Like, I had a few friends that I was using with, but other than them, like, close friends didn't even know what was going on with me. Like, they had asked me, you know, like, you seem different. Like, are you okay? Like, what's going on? And I'm just like, what are you talking about? Like, I'm, what are you talking about? And they, honestly, a lot of them had no idea until probably a year ago when I actually got out of treatment for the last time. But I ended up, getting through sophomore year and I was behind in credits 
I, I didn't think anything of it, but my goal starting out at that school was like, okay, like I'm going to work my ass off and graduate early. And then coming into 11th grade, my counselor had told me like, Hannah, like, I don't, I don't think it's possible for you to graduate early anymore. At that point, I felt like I had given up. I was like, okay, like I, I can't graduate early. Like I can't, I'm not even caught up. I, I can't do this. And so I still enrolled in classes there, but I wasn't doing anything. I barely, I would take some like tests. So you can like take tests, like exempt out of work. And I would take those, but wouldn't pass them. At one point, my counselor just asked me like, what's going on? You're not, you're not doing your work. You're not coming to school. Like, what can I do? And we ended up talking about, you know, options. And we talked about like doing less classes at once and trying to make the the load like less heavy on me. And I agreed to that. And then shortly after, like, I couldn't do it anymore. Like I tried, I tried to become motivated after that to do my work and show her like that I could do it. And I couldn't. And I became so depressed, probably the most depressed I'd ever been. I got through abusive relationships. And, you know, in, in seventh grade, something I did not mention was I actually went through rape. I was raped by a friend of a friend and I pushed it away for a long time. I didn't tell anyone. I didn't do anything about it. I just kind of tried to make it like it never happened. And then it wasn't until I really thought about it again when I was in an abusive relationship at 15 years old with a 19 year old who hit me and hurt me physically a lot and called me names, and pushed me downstairs, and raped me, and it wasn't until then that I was like, okay, like, these men have treated me in my life is not okay, and it wasn't really until then that I recognized that what they did to me was rape, like, I remember thinking, like, no, like, maybe I was asking for it, like, blah, 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 and then I remember, like, confiding in a friend, and being asked, like, well, you know, like, were you drunk or high? And people just didn't get it. I talked to a couple more friends and I actually like confided in people online anonymously. And that is when I, I was told no, like, despite what they said, despite the circumstances, like if they manipulated you, if you did not consent, like that was rape. And it wasn't until then that I was like, okay, I came to terms with the fact that I was sexually abused. And it's hard to think about how long it took for me to realize that. And then after the second rape, it wasn't until, it it wasn't too long until some girl on Facebook came forward to me and had said, you know, I need to talk to you because she saw that I was, I had broken up with the last person I was in an abusive relationship with who sexually abused me. And she basically messaged me like, can you call me? Like, I need to talk to you immediately. Like, I know him. And I was like, okay. Actually, the same day I got that message, I went to the gynecologist to get a checkup and I was diagnosed with chlamydia. So that was, that was so scary. I had no idea what, I didn't, I didn't know what STDs even really were. I mean, I knew that you could get sick from sex basically, but I didn't know that there were so many different kinds of STDs, et cetera. And I had my gynecologist put me on medication for TV and I was struggling 
trying to figure out, you know, so why did he do this to me? And why, why do I have an STD? Like, why is this all going on? I just, I was so confused. And I called this girl, this random girl from Facebook. And she's like, he, he's a bad person. Like basically telling me all this. And I'm like, I don't mean to be intrusive, but did you have sex with him? And she was like, yes. And I was like, I was like, okay, like you need to go get tested. Like I, I have chlamydia from him. And she was like, that's the same reason I called you. And I was like, oh, my God. And she she just asked me, she's like, how old are you? And I'm like, 15. And she's like, do you know how old he is? And I was like, yes. And she's like, that is rape. And I was like, I was like, how old are you? And she's like, I'm she she was above 18. I think she might have been 19. She's like, I'm 19. And it wasn't statutory rape. But he did rape me. He told me that if I didn't do it, he like he threatened her saying, if you don't have sex with me, then blah, blah, blah. I remember telling her, like, we need to do something about this. And she just said, like, no, like, he's finally out of my life. I can't, I can't risk having him come back. I wanted to tell someone so bad because I didn't really want help for myself. I didn't, I was at a point where I, I didn't really care about myself, but I didn't, I didn't want it happening to any other girls. Hannah, still, your story, your story so far has brought up a bunch of questions. And I think what you have provided parents is the, how you got there. You know, the, right. the, the part the part that happens next is you start going into longer term treatment. And, you know, you came to Fire Mountain and after Fire Mountain, there was wilderness. And after wilderness, mm-hmm. there was a, a really long period of success and then a, a really bad relapse. And I want to get to that. Yes. But I've had some questions that have come up that I know parents have. And I want to ask you these these questions. And I'm grateful that you know me. Because you know that I'm asking these questions so that parents can hear your raw and real answer. You and I have not discussed these questions beforehand. In fact, we decided to talk right. to each other like literally yesterday and then scheduled it a half a half an hour ago. Um, mm-hmm. But I want to ask the questions that I know parents ask. And if they piss you off, hang with it and give the honest answer, okay? All right. A few times you talked about, you know, Something would happen and things would get bad. You might end up in the counselor's office or in an adolescent psych unit or something like that. And you'd come back and things would be okay again, but then they would get worse. How did things get worse? What did you, what do you mean by it got worse? I was struggling in the same exact way I was before, but it, I think when I say it get, it got worse, it was like there was more self-harm. There was more drug use. There was less motivation that seems to imply that what you were doing at these adolescent units and the and the support that these people were giving you and the help that they were giving you was not working. And as someone who offers that help and support to people on a daily basis, I can honestly say sometimes it doesn't work. Sometimes people don't uh, listen to the help and support that you're getting. Sometimes they can't receive the love. And sometimes they just don't do the work. Which one was it for you? Um, well, I think that at the first rehab I went to it just it wasn't structured very well there wasn't there wasn't enough support it was really based around drug usage when I thought that you know my drug usage stemmed from my depression so there wasn't a lot of work on depression anxiety as far as the psychiatric units they were based a lot on suicide attempts and although that's something I related to I just felt like the way they talked about getting help for it, like saying, you know, just talk to someone, do this, do that, like, make sure you take your medication. I just thought it was so mediocre. I mean, it was, they told me so many things that I had already tried, like, you know, go for a walk, like exercise, like I'm trying this. 
and it's not working. So what do I do when it's not working? Like I never got the answer for that. Mm. That's powerful. What is it? You said it wasn't enough support. What is enough support? And I know this is different for every person. So I, I am asking you, what is enough support? I think for me, enough support is someone or some people giving their all to listen to me and listen to me, not to respond, but to really hear me and try and empathize with me. No, that's, I don't know. that's good. That's good because empathize parents a lot of a lot of times don't know what that word means. They think it means sympathize, which means having sympathy for someone. It's like, oh, I'm so sorry you're hurting. Right. Whereas right. empathy is like, wow, I can really feel what you're going through right now. Like exactly. you, you connected enough that I can I can say, crap, I I feel that now. Like I that makes sense to me that you feel this way. So exactly. knowing. What kind of time that takes, knowing that part of your wound was the feeling that your parents had to had to give so much attention to your brother who was, you know, dealing mm-hmm. with autism. Your family, your family has autism. It's not your brother doesn't have autism and everybody's trying to help your brother. And that's something I learned a long time ago from a, a guy named Dr. Patch Adams. Your brother doesn't have autism. Your family's got it. It affects everybody. Everybody's right. got the symptoms. Everybody's got the signs and everybody's dealing with the downstream. Mm-hmm. So... What should your parents have done? How how are they supposed to know? If you're in teen years and you're in your developmental phase and stuff like that, and you know your dad tries to say something, you're like, oh my God, whatever, dad, and roll your eyes at him. But behind that, oh my God, whatever, dad, is this girl who's been raped? Is this girl who's been abused? Is this girl who's been bullied? Is this girl who's been cutting on herself? Is this girl who's been... How... What should parents do in that moment? How do they say, no, you sit down, goddammit, I'm going to help you? Right. I think something hard about that is my parents didn't know I was struggling for a long time, but I wish, I mean, I felt like there were so many warning signs they could have seen that they didn't. Like when I thrown myself in my room and wouldn't come out for so long, I had bracelets up my arm, hiding self-harm scars. Like that's not a fashion statement or, you know, it wasn't for me when I would randomly break down and cry over stupid things saying that I wanted to die. I didn't want to be here. I wanted to sleep forever. But as far as how a parent is supposed to tell them or tell, you know, their, their child, like sit down, we're going to talk. It's like, I feel like it needs to be for me. I think that I got that. I think my parents were like, okay, sit down. Like you're going to talk to me right now. And I think really what I needed was, the opportunity to sit down and talk with them if I wanted to. And just knowing like I didn't have to, but they were there if I wanted to. And I I didn't get that for a long time. How many count for me, count for our listeners, how many rehabs, you know, uh, uh, jails and institutions you've been to. Okay. Um, Inpatient or outpatient or both. (laughs) that's such a it's such a no it's great it's such a casual response and it's it's so funny because that's that's how like everybody in in you know at fire mountain would be like so do you want iop op php or rtc right and it's like (laughs) give give the whole countdown give give it all okay so i did outpatient dialectical behavioral therapy outpatient therapy where the counselor like came to my house i did Outpatient therapy, just like regular therapy with probably like five different therapists. I did inpatient rehab, inpatient residential treatment, inpatient wilderness. And honestly, I could be forgetting something. I I think that might be everything. And then the psychiatric units. 
Like the little stays, the three days and two weeks and stuff like that. Yeah. How many times did you end up in an inpatient psychiatric unit? Three times, I believe. So you're up at nine by my count so far. Yeah, a lot. Well, point is the point that parents should call it and just do residential or start going the residential route. What point in your mind? When 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 do you stop counting the OPs and the the psychiatric units and say we just need to get this kid into RTC? I think for me it should have been after my first suicide attempt because I had already gone to countless therapists. I had already tried outpatient and now like I now that I I tried to end my life and I'm being in a psychiatric unit, like there's obviously something not working. And I think that's when I should have gone to an RTC. But I I do think it it could be different for everyone just based on what they've tried. There's a part of me that wants to ask about your experiences, not only in your 30 day, but with us at Fire Mountain and then with Wilderness after. But rather, I would like to know of those three, what worked when you were in them and what didn't work? If, if, if I was to bring you on as a consultant at Fire Mountain, what would you have us stop doing? If you were to start going to these 28-day and 30-day programs, what advice would you give them? Because as you've walked away, you know that that thing that you'll hold on to forever and that other thing that they were so hot and bothered about never worked. Right. I think if I came back to Fire Mountain as a consultant, some things I would change. Uh, I think that God, that's a hard question. I think that I would, I don't know. I feel like when I was there, I thought that a lot of, I don't even fucking know. <laughs> like. So then tell me this way. What are the things from any of them, not just Fire Mountain, but any of them that you're like, yeah, that was good. I still do that one today. Um, okay. So definitely meditation. That's like a huge thing that it can work for. I believe that it can work for anyone. It can help anyone. It can benefit anyone. Animals, like at Fire Mountain, the horses, that's something that honestly like changed my life. And like being around animals uh, was just like amazing. Hiking and wilderness, like going on wilderness trips and wilderness, like just being in the nature and having to sit with who you are and where you're at and accepting like you're in butt fuck nowhere with butt fuck clothes, you know? <laughs> And honestly, I think uh, a huge thing that helped at Fire Mountain was the diet. And there's a really specific diet there. And not only like did my, I didn't, not only did I lose weight, but I felt physically like I physically felt better. Like my stomach wasn't hurting as much. And then mentally I felt better. So, I don't, I don't know what else. That's great. All right. So you go through a total of three inpatient rehabs and mm -hmm. Just so you know, uh, in, in talking about three inpatients and the outpatients you've done in the psychiatric units, you're nowhere near the most, nowhere near the most that I've ever heard of. And I know that you know people oh, right, right. way more times that you have. Um, mm -hmm. So you've gone through things. And while you were at Wilderness, something landed. Like you discovered something at Wilderness about yourself that really worked for you. And that allowed you a pretty significant period of sobriety. And and you and I have the same concept of sobriety. It wasn't that you weren't using and weren't cutting. It's that as a person, you were awake, aware, you were sober, you were in the game, you were dealing with life on life's terms. You were in sobriety. Something happened. Yeah. And then you ended up in juvie. Yeah. 
When did the slip start? Not not the actual event, but when did it all start to fall apart? I was at Fire Mountain for a couple months and then straight from Fire Mountain, I went to Wilderness. And so I was gone for a total of five months. And then I got home and I was sober for a, a long time. I mean, I, I had lapsed, but it wasn't it wasn't anything ongoing. And then I think for at least six months, I was sober, doing good, feeling good. And then the depression hit back again. And I started smoking weed again. It was the only thing I was using, but I was using it so excessively daily, every day, all the time. I was always high. And when I wasn't, the the come down was awful. Just feeling like, oh, like I'm still a depressed piece of shit. I lost motivation. When I had gotten out, I actually got a boyfriend and we, he, he was great. He was an awesome support for me and he was sober. He didn't use and we, we were doing a lot of fun things together. And then I, I lost, I lost motivation to do fun things. I lost um, hope in life. I just, I, I don't even, I can't even identify why. I just felt like, like I'd never be happy again. And I, I kept telling myself like, you know, maybe I wasn't even happy when I came out of treatment. Like maybe it was just a honeymoon phase, but, and it hurt so bad because it was like that. I think when I got out of treatment, that was the first time that I ever genuinely felt happy. And then coming out of that happiness and back into depression, it was like, this is worse than it's ever been because now I know what happiness feels like. And I, I don't have it. And it was, then I was using like every day, fighting with my parents more and more. And I ended up, you know, doing kind of better. Like, I think I was doing better on the outside more than I was on the inside. I mean, it seemed like I was doing great, but I still wasn't. I was having suicidal thoughts every day. Um, The littlest things triggered me to want to die. And I, I was 17 and my parents agreed to like, let me move out with my boyfriend because you know I was so close to 18 and they thought I was ready and it went downhill from there really I was not ready to be on my own there was so much responsibility and you know I was just a child I'm I'm still just a child even though I'm 18 like I'm I'm not an adult I'm not nothing's changed you know like the responsibility was just too much and I I was letting my emotions get the best of me I started hurting myself again which had been I hadn't hurt myself in a very long time. I had lapsed a couple times, but it was nothing ongoing. And then it was actually this last July where it was the worst, hurting myself and using, not really caring about anything. And I, I had a, I'd actually gotten my license earlier this year and a car, and I had all the resp- all the freedom in the world, and it, it still wasn't enough. I still wasn't happy, you know. I remember feeling like when I was in my parents' house, like, oh, if I had a car and this and that and my, this freedom and blah, 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 I'd be happy. And just kind of coming to the realization that, like, no matter what I have, I'm not happy was definitely difficult. And I I had reached out to you a few times, actually, and told you, like, I'm struggling. Like, I, I, I'm hurting myself. I want to die. Like, I told you, like, I had lapsed with cocaine and I did Xanax and I just... I could feel myself spiraling down, but I didn't know what to do about it. Like, what am I supposed to do? I'm on medication. I'm taking my medication. I'm 
seeing my psychiatrist. I'm, I've been to treatment. I've been to therapy. Nothing's working. So what am I supposed to do? So I think at that point I had just given up. I was like, you know, whatever. I, I kept telling myself like the worst thing that's going to happen is I can die. And you know, that wouldn't be so bad. And, um, my boyfriend and I were fighting a lot. Like I, I was so reckless in my words to him. It, it makes me feel awful thinking about the things I said to him just because I was like upset and sad and angry. It was, you know, late July that I had gotten into some legal trouble and then went to juvie. And now? And now I actually, I got out of juvie August 14th and I'm still going through like the legal process court and stuff. I took a plea deal to get my charges down and, you know, now I'm, I am charged with just one felony instead of however many. And I was on house arrest and I, I got through that, got the ankle bracelet off. And now I'm just kind of waiting to figure out how long I'm going to be on probation, how much restitution is going to be. It was a, the incident was related to unlawful use of a weapon, which was my vehicle. So that comes with insurance issues. So figuring out insurance and there's just so much on my plate. And right now I'm at a place where I'm having to find a job within like less than 30 days. Otherwise I have to do like a lot of community service to get money. And so, yeah. So the depression, the anxiety, um, the self-harm stuff, where are you with that now? Um, I haven't been self-harming. I'm not really sure like why I haven't. I'm not sure what's stopped me, but I am very depressed, very anxious. Um, I am struggling with like PTSD and like having nightmares almost every night. About what? And uh, mostly the rape and my rapist. Okay. Yeah. Are you seeing anyone right but, now? Are you going to meetings? Yeah, what are you, what are I'm. You doing? I'm doing really well at like keeping up with my therapist and my psychiatrist as well, who provides my medication. Being just brutally honest about what's going on. But yeah. Did your relationship survive? Um. It's being worked on. Good for you. So I, I have hopes. That's a lot to happen to end with what you just said, Hannah. Right. I right. mean, that's, that's, that's the hardest part about what we deal with, what we go through, is having hope. Mm-hmm. What is, yeah. there's, you know, right now I'm, I'm so desperate to ask you, what are your plans for the future? Are you going to go back to college? What are you doing? And I know better. And the name of this show we started out with is one of Hannah's days today. And my Mm -hmm. desire to ask you about your plans for the future are stopped only by the fact that I know from personal experience and I know from working in this field for so long that that question doesn't help. Right, right. But just know, you know, I'm I'm taking it one day at a time and I, I do have big plans for my future. Why does taking it one day at a time work for you? Why is that your mantra right now? Gosh, I've struggled so much with thinking about the past, thinking about, you know, what the incident specifically, like the, that got me in legal trouble. Um, I, I'm killing myself. I've been killing myself with the thoughts of, you know, what it could have been, what it should have been, what I could have done, what I should have done. And it's not helping. I can't keep thinking about yesterday or thinking about tomorrow because it's, it's not in my control. So it's just about today. Yep. How's today been? It's been okay. It's been, you know, more productive than usual. I've started cleaning my room and that's always been so overwhelming for me. But yesterday I actually went to the library 
and got a new library card and I picked up a couple books. I got Don't Let Your Emotions Run Your Life, <laughs> which is about dialectical behavioral therapy. Yeah, I, know um, I got Living Mindfully and then I got Conquering Shame and Codependency. So started checking those out. And then I also got a psychology book from Goodwill the other day. So I'm going to start reading that as well. Does it help you to study what you're going through? Yeah, definitely. To know that like there's real reasons why I feel this way helps so much to know that I'm literally not crazy. I mean, maybe a little, but. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I can't, I can't begin to talk about my admiration for you of, of just being so honest with the thousands of people who are going to listen to this and parents who are wondering what's going on with their little girl. Um, and I've, I've gotten the chance to know you really well. And like I said, I've seen you at your best and I've seen you at your worst. And you and I have talked on the phone sometimes at your best and sometimes at your worst. Um, yeah. But you getting on the air like this and just spilling your guts, does it help you? It feels so freeing. Yeah, it does help. Well, you can do it anytime. Uh, all you have to do is call and say, I got some shit to talk about. And I'll put you on the air. And I, I admire you, Hannah. I know you're going through it. And I know I know there's a lot to do. And I know there's a lot to do today. Um, I'm, I'm proud of you. I'm proud that at the Thank end you. of all this, at the end of 18 years, you still say the words, I have hope. It's a big deal. And I'm proud of you. Thank you, Aaron. Ladies and gentlemen, being able to listen to a teen talk so honestly. My goal for today's program was to let you hear it straight from someone who's not having gone through that and they've been in 15 years of recovery, but is doing the work, not just today, but right now. And as we're speaking, I want you to know the complexity and the complication of what's going on in a child's life, that it's not a a suicide attempt is not a cry for help. It's the real deal every time that it never is just a, a plea for attention. If cutting and self-harm was just a way of getting your attention, Hannah wouldn't have hit it. She would have displayed it. She'd have done it in front of people. And that's why the signs and the symptoms, no matter how subtle, seek them, find them, search it out. I've worked very closely with Hannah's parents, and I know how desperately in love they are with their daughter. And I know that they look at themselves and their actions in the past and their the things that they miss. I, I go through that with these families. We only have today and what's going on right now with our kids. So I want you to use this conversation today to understand the complexity. A child's life is not simple. It's not easy, especially when something has happened that we may or may not know about. So get into it with the kids. As always, parents, you take care of yourselves first, you take care of your adult relationships second, and you take care of your children third, because in this way, we do our best work and we are our best for our kids. I want to thank Emily and Kristen for making this show happen over there at Mental Health News Radio. I want to thank my guest, Hannah, and I want to thank you, the listener, for hanging with Hannah while she talks about this deep and dark. And Hannah, I want to thank you for your honesty and your brutal truth that maybe it helps one person. And I want you to know from being a person in this industry, in this business, helping one person with this, it is, there's a reason why it's the 12th step. Because when you take this message to people who are still suffering and one person lives another day because of it, it helps with this pain. It helps with taking this away. So to everybody, thank you for this opportunity to bring it out there. This is your host, Aaron Huey. You've been listening to Beyond Risk and Back. 
Thank you for joining us at Beyond Risk and Back. Support for parents, clinicians, and teachers. Join us at beyondriskandback.com. You can download past episodes there. Visit Fire Mountain Residential Treatment Center's website for information, support, and continuing education trainings for parents and professionals at www.firemountainprograms.com. You can also connect with me directly on Facebook by searching at Beyond Risk and Back. You can also follow me on Twitter, catch me on YouTube, and join me here every week for another podcast. This is Aaron Huey saying, remember, take care of yourself first, your adult relationships second, and your children third, because in that way, we do our best work for the children. Thank you for listening, and we will talk again soon.